Maybe we should search for some other places first, Grover suggested. Like Elysium, for existence. For existence? Sam, what? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sidecar Stories. My name is Sam, but y'all know what this is. Hello. Potty for Potter says, I'm actually in a chemistry exam. We've been given 24 hours, so here I am. My college is still locked down. Hi, everyone. I'm sort of imagining it as as if you are like, you're being proctored right now. Is that a verb? Is that a, a proper application of that word? I'm not sure that it is. I do words like for this, this whole channel is just all about words. I should really know that, shouldn't I? It, it baffles me that there isn't just a standard thank you emoji. Why is there not just a standard thank you emoji? Just like a, a little like big bubble letters, T-Y exclamation. We would use it all the time. As I think is true of a lot of y'all, there's family stuff going on. Um, to everyone who is with your family, whether it is biological or found, I hope you're having an excellent time. Those of you who have not been able to make that happen, um, I am really glad you have decided to come here and join us tonight. It's fantastic to be here with you. I hope you all are having a wonderful week. Hogwarts Hippie says, good deal, Luke. Mr. Invincible, I get my second vac next week. I had a pretty wicked reaction to the first, hoping the next one will be better. Yeah, Mama Cass got hers. She just got her second dose today. Her first dose, it was like a little rough, but honestly not bad at all. So yeah, all of you who are having some like some tough reactions, you know, stay strong and thank you for uh, thank you for going through that for all of us. Um, I'm going to be getting mine hopefully soon. I am, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty young, I'm pretty healthy, and my my job does not require me to, uh, like, I know we got some teachers in here, and I know we've got some uh, some folks in food service, and so my jobs are not that, and as such, I'm I'm a lower priority here, but I am more than happy to let those folks in kind of the higher, higher density, higher heat professions, I am happy to let y'all go first with it. Um, so I'll be getting mine soon. Hopefully in the next two weeks, I can start to sort of, like, make that process happen. <laughs> Basically, you're you're showing your immune system like it's your wanted poster. That's what a vaccine is. It's a wanted poster. You give a representation of this thing. The representation can't hurt anybody, but it's something so that your immune system will then recognize it later on the moment it shows up. So that's how I like to imagine vaccines. They're the they're the wanted poster pasted onto the side of the saloon door, um, just to say like, all right now. If you see this face pass through these parts, that is a shoot on sight for all of you. Don't you worry about the consequences. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Tanisha. Antibodies, you have all been deputized. Do your thing. JCA says, good for y'all. Happy antibodies. Happy antibodies. <laughs> God, God bless the antibodies, everyone. That sounded creepy. That was more creepy than my original Tiny Tim, I think. I'm here for your antibodies. It's me, Tiny Tim. Tiptoe through the tulips by the window. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about Tiny Tim and antibodies and cowboys and outlaws, I think is what we're on right now. I think we've lost the plot here, haven't we? Which is dangerous for such a, a story-based stream because if y'all don't know 
My name is Sam, and this is Sidecar Stories. Uh, tonight is, of course, Flying Sidecar, as it is every Thursday night. It is a voice actor's venture through some stories that we all love. We're going to get a chance to read two chapters. We're going to talk about them. We're going to discuss them. We're going to learn a little bit about them. Um, we're going to discuss our themes and our characters, especially. And everyone, I hope you are prepared for such things. Join us for the after stream and play. Yeah, I think there's a, a gang jumping into... Um, I, it's it's going to be Among Us, correct? Yes, indeed. Um, Dahlia, if you want to, if you desire to, drop a link in chat um, for that for that server, you can absolutely feel free to do so. Vantius Live says, and I might not be wrong about that. Yeah, I think I, I need to sort of like cap off all of my statements with, you know how it's like, the more you know, or, and that's the rest of the story. I think the sidecar tag is, and I might not be wrong about that. <laughs> I might not be wrong this time. Is it time to talk some review? I think it probably is. Last week on Flying Sidecar, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, chapters 17 and 18. Chapter 17, of course, being, what else would it be? We shop for waterbeds. And chapter 18 being, Annabeth does obedience school. What? Well... Um, they have arrived in Los Angeles. Um, they, they're just sort of, they're, they're just getting there. Um, they have, you know, they've, they've taken the, uh, they, they've hitched a ride with what seems to be some sort of illegal animal transportation rig that Ares kind of hooked them up with. Thanks a lot, Ares, as usual. Um, they used the Lotus Cash card to take a, a taxi the rest of the way from Las Vegas to, um, uh, down to, uh, Los Angeles, and they roll into town, things seem to be going slowly, and that's a big problem, they do not have very much time, they literally have less than a day to get where they need to go, which means they have to find the entrance to the underworld, but as y'all might imagine, they can't just find that in the phone book, there's no real good address for this. So they're wandering around, they encounter some, some punk ruffians, as it were, What on earth would that noise be? It sounds like someone is like juggling crates full of bowling pins. The, the, uh, the, these kids chase them into this little shop where they hide for a moment. It is Krusty's like waterbed emporium or what have you. Essentially, uh, they are, uh, let's see, Krusty's waterbed palace. Now, what the heck is that? Well, they meet the proprietor, who is kind of a, a half-giant of a person. Um, and very quickly, they find out Krusty is indeed trouble. As I think one should generally expect from anyone who decides to go by the name Krusty of their own volition. Krusty turns out to be a bad guy. Who would have guessed? Well, here we are in this waterbed emporium. Krusty is short for Procrustus or Procrustes. He kind of stands by his name. Um, this is a, it's not really a monster, it's as far as we know, kind of just a person from Greek myth, but this particular person from Greek myth, he is known for one big thing. He's got these beds, right? I think in the original myth, he's got a bed, and this one, obviously, he's got a bunch of beds, but they're exactly six feet, and if you don't fit on the bed, he's gonna wreck your whole scene. If you are too tall, he's going to lop you off at either end to make you fit the bed. If you're too short, you're gonna get stretched out in order to fit the bed. This is some wild horror movie stuff in the middle of this, very, you know, fairly young novel here. Um, 
<laughs> Rollet says, he did say he liked them, if I remember correctly, because he brings people into his shop. This is such a weird, such a weird little uh, encounter, but fortunately, Percy keeps his wits about him. He manages to get Procrustes sort of bound up on one of his own beds and goes ahead and lops him off at either end. And at this point, Procrustes, quote, sort of like stops making deals. That's not a perfect quote. Don't, don't, well, don't quote me on that. And here we go, the sidecar tagline, but I might not be wrong this time. <laughs> uh, Levy says, why does modernism exist? Couldn't tell you. No idea. Um, it also depends on how you define modernism um, and, and in what field you're referring to. Um, we have got, of course, uh, less time and more pressure as Percy and uh, Annabeth and Grover leave this place. They do manage, however, to track down an address. They find an address that is going to get them to, uh, let's see, it's DOA Records. Um, DOA Records, of course, being the uh, the entrance to the underworld here in Los Angeles. By the way, I do apologize, apologize if I've said Las Vegas once or many times, because I feel like I probably have. Chapter 18, Annabeth does obedience school. Well, what does this mean? pretty weird. They show up at this record shop, this this uh, uh, recording studio, I think it's more themed after. Arriving inside, they find Charon. They find a Karen. They find Charon in here. Um, C-H-A-R-O-N. Not Chiron. This is a different dude. The recording studio is filled with people that are just sort of wandering around. They're even a little hard to see. You can see them fine out of the corner of your eye, but if you look right at them, they sort of fade out. Charon, indeed, Hogwarts hippie, a bit bougie. I think we can all agree on this much. Really, lo really loves those Italian suits, you know? He's a, he strikes me as a bit of a gangster altogether. This sort of someone, you know, I'm, I'm here to look fancy and I'm here to be the boss. So, you know, don't, uh, don't step too close. We're going to be fine, and don't you change my easy listening station. I'm going to stick deeper and deeper into the Godfather. Oh, no, I'm melting. Charon has essentially, by the end of this scene, sussed out, oh, y'all ain't dead, are you? But they got some drachmas on them. And essentially, they bribe Charon to bring them across the River Styx um, and into the, the, the realm of death into the underworld. Um, they arrive, and it looks a lot more like um, like airport security than you might think at first, um, you might, than you might expect. Um, they manage to get through just barely after a, um, uh, a tenuous scene with, um, uh, with the three-headed dog Cerberus. Um, and it seems that Annabeth has some sort of some sort of memory connected to either Cerberus or a beast like Cerberus. We don't know precisely what, but, um, well, we know that Annabeth leaves this encounter crying, sort of seeming to, seeming to be remembering something. But now officially, they've left Cerberus behind, and they are headed in toward the Palace of Hades. And that is where we are. Hogwarts Hippie is talking about, let's see... Oh, Stationary Fork says, hey, how's it going? I've missed you. Okay, ooh boy, now I feel like I'm eavesdropping on a somebody else's conversation. <laughs> I, you know, sometimes it's like, yeah, I see this pop up in chat, so I assume it's like, 
<laughs> I assume it's something for the the stream at large. But frankly, I think it's more exciting the way that this goes. I think I I think it's super cool that y'all sort of like jump in here and and uh, you know come and greet one another. I I am very happy about sort of again. I'm very happy about what y'all have made this. As I've said many times before. The Sidecar Stories community can only be exactly whatever y'all make it, and y'all chose to make it fantastic like this, so thank you very much. Sparkle Lovegood says, I read somewhere you can somehow change the hype train settings. You can, but what I'm saying is I have not done so. I have, I have seen where you can do that, and I have not touched them. Um, and as such, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> uh, Stationary Fork says, lol, not eavesdropping, Sam. Okay. Just saying that the bees will be here in two weeks. Oh, cool! Are you going to be an apiarist? I believe... Is that correct? Let me Google that, make sure I got that right. Apiarist. I want to say an apiary is indeed a... Um, <laughs> apiarist noun form of apiary. A place where bees are kept. A collection of beehives. Apiarist, yeah. A-P-I-A-R-I-S-T. <gasps> oh, Yes! I nailed it. <laughs> where, where the lurkers at, says Mem Knight. <laughs> where are you at? Once again, I, I love y'all. I love the, the cowboys who show up here. <laughs> You're just like hunting through for all the outlaws. Not that I consider lurkers to be outlaws. I think y'all are fine. I'm not worried about lurkers. Um, okay, now everyone. <laughs> Knowledge Drop by Sam, says Stationary Fork. We could have a whole stream just called Knowledge Drop where we... <laughs> Cass and I played this as a game one time. She would just ask me about totally random subjects and I would try to just bring, dredge up whatever internet knowledge I have about this thing because I do have like a very wide and pretty shallow understanding of like just a lot of stuff in general. I've seen, I've just, I, I really like YouTube, but I really like educational YouTube, and that's where you can find me, basically, when I'm not streaming. <laughs> All of you who have been such great mouthpieces for the show, who have helped us to conquer the YouTube and Twitch algorithms that, that really, you know, this show wasn't really made for. Y'all are the thing that is saving this show from that, from fading quietly into obscurity. Um, that is the, the link tree, and you can use that, of course, to share around, uh, but if you want to head over there, uh, we do have the first two, the first two little tiers, they're, they're just little ones right now, the first two little tiers of the Patreon are up and ready to go. Everyone, it's time to read. I don't know if y'all have noticed this, but I'm starting with the recent stuff and then working my way backwards, YouTube chapters, which means all of my YouTube timelines should be a lot cleaner from here on out. Now, everyone, everyone, I thank you very much for joining me. Let's get into our chapter. And if you're watching this on YouTube, go check out these videos. And also, those of you who have contributed um, some, some of your time by uh, throwing in the, the timestamps for the beginning of chapters, I just realized all I have to do is put those timestamps in the description, which means y'all have been super handy without even knowing it. I'm going to go throw those in now. All right. I think we're ready. Chapter 19. We find out the truth. Sort of. Imagine the largest concert crowd you've ever seen. A football field packed with a million fans. Now imagine a field a million times that big, packed with people, and imagine the electricity has gone out. And there's no noise. No light. No light. 
no beach ball bouncing around over the crowd. Something tragic has happened backstage. Whispering masses of people are just milling around in the shadows, waiting for a concert that will never start. If you can picture that, you've got a pretty good idea of what the fields of Asphodel looked like. The black grass had been trampled by eons of dead feet. A warm, moist wind blew like the breath of a swamp. Black trees, Grover told me they were poplars, grew in clumps here and there. The cavern ceiling was so high above us it might have been a bank of storm clouds except for the stalactites, which glowed faint gray and looked wickedly pointed. I tried not to imagine they'd fall on us at any moment, but dotted around the fields were several that had fallen and impaled themselves in the black grass. I guess the dead didn't have to worry about little hazards like being speared by stalactites the size of booster rockets. Annabeth, Grover, and I tried to blend into the crowd. Keeping an eye out for security ghouls, I couldn't help looking for familiar faces among the spirits of Asphodel, but the dead are hard to look at. Their faces shimmer. They look slightly angry or confused. They'll come up to you and speak, but their voices sound like chatter, like bats twittering. Once you realize you can't understand them, they frown and move away. The dead aren't scary. They're just sad. We crept along following the line of new arrivals that snaked from the main gates toward a black-tented pavilion with a banner that read, Judgments for Elysium and Eternal Damnation. Welcome, newly deceased. Out of the back of the tent came two much smaller lines. To the left, spirits flanked by security ghouls were marched down a rocky path toward the fields of punishment, which glowed and smoked in the distance. A vast, cracked wasteland with rivers of lava and minefields and miles of barbed wire separating the different torture areas. Even from far away, I could see people being chased by hellhounds, burned at the stake, forced to run naked through cactus patches, or listen to opera music. I could just make out a tiny hill, with the ant-sized figure of Sisyphus struggling to move his boulder to the top. I saw worse tortures, too. Things I don't want to describe. The line coming from the right side of the Judgment Pavilion was much better. This one led down toward a small valley surrounded by walls. A gated community which seemed to be the only happy part of the underworld. Beyond the security gate were neighborhoods of beautiful houses from every time period in history. Roman villas and medieval castles and Victorian mansions. Silver and gold flowers bloomed on the lawns. The grass rippled in rainbow colors. I could hear laughter and smell barbecue cooking. Elysium. In the middle of that valley was a glittering blue lake, with three small islands like a vacation resort in the Bahamas. The Isles of the Blessed, for people who had chosen to be reborn three times and three times achieved Elysium. Immediately I knew... That's where I wanted to go when I died. That's what it's all about, Annabeth said like she was reading my thoughts. 
That's the place for heroes. But I thought of how few people were in Elysium, how tiny it was compared to the fields of Asvadel or even the fields of punishment. So few people did good in their lives. It was depressing. We left the Judgment Pavilion and moved deeper into the Asphodel fields. It got darker. The colors faded from our clothes. The crowds of chattering spirits began to thin. After a few miles of walking, we began to hear a familiar screech in the distance. Looming on the horizon was a palace of glittering black obsidian. Above the parapets swirled three dark, bat-like creatures, the Furies. I got the feeling they were waiting for us. I suppose it's too late to turn back, Grover said wistfully. We'll be okay. I tried to sound confident. Maybe we should search some of the other places first, Grover suggested. Like Elysium, for instance? Come on, goat boy. Annabeth grabbed his arm. Grover yelped. His sneakers sprouted wings, and his legs shot forward, pulling him away from Annabeth. He landed flat on his back on the grass. Grover, Annabeth chided. Stop messing around. But I didn't. He yelped again. His shoes were flapping like crazy now. They levitated off the ground and started dragging him away from us. Ah, my ah, he yelled. But the magic word seemed to have no effect. My ya already. 911, help! I got over being stunned and made a grab for Grover's hand, but too late. He picked up speed, skidding downhill like a bobsled. We ran after him. Annabeth shouted, Untie the shoes! It was a smart idea, but I guess not so easy when your shoes are pulling you along feet first at full speed. Grover tried to sit up, but he couldn't get close to the laces. We kept after him, trying to keep him inside as he ripped between legs of spirits who chattered at him in annoyance. I was sure Grover was going to barrel straight through the gates of Hades' palace, but his shoes veered sharply to the right and dragged him in the opposite direction. The slope got steeper. Grover picked up speed. Annabeth and I had to sprint to keep up. The cavern walls narrowed on either side, and I realized we'd entered some kind of tunnel. No black grass or trees now, just rock underfoot, and the dim light of the stalactites above. Grover, I yelled, my voice echoing. Hold on to something. What? He yelled back. He was grabbing at gravel, but there was nothing big enough to slow him down. The tunnel got darker and colder. The hairs on my arms bristled. It smelled evil down here. It made me think of things I shouldn't even know about. Blood spilled on an ancient stone altar. The foul breath of a murderer. Then I saw what was ahead of us, and I stopped dead in my tracks. The tunnel widened into a huge, dark cavern, and in the middle was a chasm the size of a city block. Grover was sliding straight toward the edge. Come on, Percy, Annabeth yelled, tugging at my wrist. But that's... I know, she shouted. The place you described in your dreams, but Grover's going to fall in if we don't catch him. She was right, of course. Grover's predicament got me moving again. He was yelling, clawing at the ground, but the winged shoes kept dragging him toward the pit, and I didn't 
think that we could possibly get to him in time. What saved him were his hooves. The flying sneakers had always been a loose fit on him, and finally Grover hit a big rock and the shoe came flying off. The left shoe sped into the darkness, falling down into the chasm. The right shoe kept tugging him along, but not as fast. Grover was able to slow himself down by grabbing onto a big rock and using it like an anchor. He was ten feet from the edge of the pit when we caught onto him and hauled him back up the slope. The other winged shoe tugged itself off, circled around us angrily, and kicked at our heads in protest before flying off into the chasm to join its twin. We all collapsed, exhausted, on the obsidian gravel. My limbs felt like lead. Even my backpack seemed heavier, as if somebody had filled it with rocks. Grover was scratched up pretty bad. His hands were bleeding. His eyes had gone slit-pupiled, goat-style, the way that they did whenever he was terrified. I didn't know. I, I didn't. I... Wait, I said. Listen. I heard something. A deep whisper in the darkness. Another few seconds, and Annabeth said, Percy, this place... Shh. I stood. The sound was getting louder. A muttering, evil voice from far, far below us. Coming from the pit. Grover sat up. What? What is that noise? Annabeth heard it too now. I could see it in her eyes. Tartarus. The entrance to Tartarus. I uncapped Anaclusmos. The bronze sword expanded, gleaming in the darkness, and the evil voice seemed to falter, just for a moment, before resuming its chant. I could almost make out the words now. Ancient, ancient words, older even than Greek, as if... Magic, I said. We have to get out of here, Annabeth said. Together we dragged Grover to his hooves and started back up the tunnel. My legs wouldn't move fast enough. My backpack weighed me down. The voice got louder and angrier behind us, and we broke into a run. Not a moment too soon. A cold blast of wind pulled at our backs, as if the entire pit were inhaling. For a terrifying moment, I lost ground, my feet slipping in the gravel. If we'd been any closer to the edge, we would have been sucked right in. We kept struggling forward and finally reached the top of the tunnel, where the cavern widened out into the fields of Asphodel. The wind died. 
A wail of outrage echoed from deep in the tunnel. Something was not happy we'd gotten away. What was that? Grover panted when we'd collapsed in the relative safety of a black poplar grove. Was that one of one of Hades's pets? Annabeth and I looked at each other. I could tell she was nursing an idea, probably the same one she'd gotten during the taxi ride to L.A., but she was too scared to share it. That was enough to terrify me. I capped my sword and put the pen back in my pocket. Let's keep going. I looked at Grover. Can you walk? He swallowed. Yeah, sure. I never liked those shoes anyway. He tried to sound brave about it, but he was trembling as badly as Annabeth and I were. Whatever was in that pit was nobody's pet. It was unspeakably old and powerful. Even Echidna hadn't given me that feeling. I was almost relieved to turn my back on that tunnel and head toward the Palace of Hades. Almost. There we have it, folks. A cheddar break. Now, what's a cheddar break? 60 to 120 seconds of your time just to discuss what is going on here. We have heard something like that. We've even seen this pit before. What does that mean? We've seen this pit. We've heard this voice. We don't know what it's saying now, but we know whatever's down there wants, wants Percy on its side. Put yourself in the position of our three heroes, especially Percy. What is it that's going through your mind right now? You've had all these warnings about uh, different people's loyalty, about gifts, about all sorts of stuff. What's the first thing that's coming to your mind right now? As you have finally encountered face-to-face -face this bottomless chasm before you. That's the question. The Furies circled the parapets, high in the gloom. The outer walls of the fortress glittered black, and the two-story tall bronze gates stood wide open. Up close, I saw that the engravings on the gates were scenes of death. Some were from modern times, an atomic bomb exploding over a city, a trench filled with gas-mask-wearing soldiers, a line of African famine victims waiting with empty bowls, but all of them looked as if they'd been etched into bronze thousands of years ago. I wondered if I was looking at prophecies that had come true. Inside the courtyard was the strangest garden I had ever seen. Multicolored mushrooms, poisonous shrubs, and weird luminous plants grew without sunlight. Precious jewels made up for the lack of flowers, Piles of rubies as big as my fist, clumps of raw diamond. 
Standing here and there like frozen party guests were Medusa's garden statues. Petrified children, satyrs and centaurs, all smiling grotesquely. In the center of the garden, there was an orchard of pomegranate trees, their orange blossoms neon bright in the dark. The Garden of Persephone, Annabeth said. Keep walking. I understood why she wanted to move on. The tart smell of those pomegranates was almost overwhelming. I had a sudden desire to eat them, but then I remembered the story of Persephone. One bite of underworld food and we would never be able to leave. I pulled Grover away to keep him from picking a big juicy one. We walked up the steps of the palace, between black columns through a black marble portico and into the house of Hades. The entry hall had a polished bronze floor which seemed to boil in the reflected torchlight. There was no ceiling, just the cavern roof far above. I guess they never had to worry about rain down here. Every side door was guarded by a skeleton in military gear. Some wore Greek armor, some British redcoat uniforms, some camouflage with tattered American flags on the shoulders. They carried spears or muskets or M16s. None of them bothered us, but their hollow eye sockets followed as we walked down the hall toward the big set of doors on the opposite end. Two U.S. Marine skeletons guarded the doors. They grinned down at us, rocket-propelled grenade launchers held across their chests. You know, Grover mumbled, I bet Hades doesn't have to trouble with door-to-door -door salesmen. My backpack weighed a ton now. I couldn't figure out why. I wanted to open it to check if I'd somehow picked up a stray bowling ball, but this wasn't the time. Well, guys, I said, I suppose we should knock. A hot wind blew down the corridor and the doors swung open. The guards stepped aside. I guess that means entrevue, Annabeth said. The room inside looked just like my dream, except this time the throne of Hades was occupied. He was the third god I had met, but the first who really struck me as godlike. He was at least ten feet tall, for one thing, dressed in black silk robes and a crown of braided gold. His skin was albino white, his hair shoulder-length and jet black. He wasn't bulked up like Ares, but he radiated power. He lounged on his throne of fused human bones, looking lithe, graceful, and dangerous as a panther. I immediately felt like he should be giving the orders. He knew more than I did. He should be my master. It took me a long moment to snap out of it. Hades' aura was affecting me, just like Ares' had. The Lord of the Dead resembled pictures I'd seen of Adolf Hitler or Napoleon or the terrorist leaders who direct suicide bombers. Hades had the same intense eyes, the same kind of 
mesmerizing, evil charisma. You're brave to come here, son of Poseidon, he said in an oily voice. After what you have done to me, very brave indeed. Or perhaps you are just simply very foolish. Numbness crept into my joints, tempting me to lie down and just take a little nap at Hades' feet. Curl up and sleep here forever. I fought the feeling and stepped forward. I knew what I had to say. Lord and uncle, I come with two requests. Hades raised an eyebrow. When he sat forward on his throne, shadowy faces appeared in the folds of his black garment, faces of torment, as if the garment were stitched of trapped souls from the fields of punishment, trying to get out. The ADHD part of me wondered, off-task, whether the rest of his clothes were made in the same way. What horrible things did you have to do in your life to get woven into Hades' underwear? Only two requests, Hades said. Arrogant child, as if you had not already taken enough. Speak, then. It amuses me not to strike you dead yet. I swallowed. This was going about as well as I had feared. I glanced at the empty, smaller throne next to Hades's. It was shaped like a black flower, gilded with gold. I wished Queen Persephone was here. I recalled something in myths about how she would calm her husband's moods. But it was summer. Of course, Persephone would be above in the world of light with her mother, the goddess of agriculture, Demeter. Her visits, not the tilt of the planet, create the seasons. Annabeth cleared her throat. Her finger prodded me in the back. Oh, Lord Zeus, I said. Look, sir, there can't be a war among the gods. It would, it would be bad. Really bad, Grover added helpfully. Return Zeus's master bolt to me, I said. Please, sir, let me carry it back to Olympus. Hades' eyes grew dangerously bright. You dare to keep up this pretense after what you've done? I glanced back at my friends. They looked as confused as I was. Uh, uncle, I said, you keep saying after what you've done. What exactly have I done? The throne room shook with a tremor so strong they probably felt it in... Los Angeles upstairs. Debris fell from the cavernous ceiling. Doors burst open all along the walls and skeletal warriors marched in, hundreds of them, from every time period and nation in Western civilization. They lined the perimeter of the room, blocking the exits. Hades bellowed. You think that I want war, godling? I wanted to say... Well, these guys don't look like peace activists, but I thought that might be a dangerous answer. You are the Lord of the Dead, I said carefully. 
a war would expand your kingdom, right? A typical thing for my brothers to say. You think I need more subjects? Did you not see the sprawl of the Asphodel fields? Well? Have you any idea how much my kingdom has swollen in this past century alone? How many subdivisions I've had to open? I opened my mouth to respond, but Hades was on a roll now. More security ghouls, he moaned. Traffic problems at the Judgment Pavilion, double overtime for the staff. I used to be a rich god, Percy Jackson. I control all the precious metals under the earth, but my expenses... Karen wants a pay raise, I blurted, just remembering the fact. As soon as I said it, I wished I could just sew up my mouth. Don't you get me started on Karen, Hades yelled. He's been impossible ever since he discovered Italian suits. Problems everywhere. I've got to deal with all of them personally. The commute time alone from the palace to the gates is enough to drive me insane. And death just keeps arriving. No, godling. I need no help getting subjects. I did not ask for this war. But you took Zeus's master bolt. Lies. <sighs> More rumbling. Hades rose from his throne, towering to the height of a football goalpost. Your father may fool Zeus, boy, but I am not so stupid. I see his plan. His plan? You were the thief from the winter solstice, he said. Your father thought to keep you as his little secret. He directed you into the throne room on Olympus. You took the master bolt and my helm. Had I not sent my fury to discover you in the Yancey Academy, Poseidon might have succeeded in hiding his little scheme to start a war. But now you have been forced out into the open. You will be exposed as Poseidon's thief, and I will have my helm back. But, Annabeth spoke. I could tell her mind was going a million miles an hour. Lord Hades, your helm of darkness is missing too? Don't play innocent with me, girl. You and the satyr have been helping this hero come here to threaten me in Poseidon's name, no doubt, to bring me an ultimatum. Does Poseidon think I can be blackmailed into supporting him? No, I said. Poseidon didn't. I, 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 I didn't. I have said nothing of the hymn's disappearance, Hades snarled. Because I had no illusions that anyone on Olympus would offer me the slightest justice, the slightest help. 
I can ill afford word to get out that my most powerful weapon of fear is missing. So I search for you myself. And when it was clear you were coming to deliver your threat, I did not try to stop you. You didn't try to stop us, but... Return my helm now or I shall stop death. Hades threatened. That is my counterproposal. I will open the earth and you shall have the dead pour back into the world. I will make your lands a nightmare. And you, Percy Jackson, your skeleton will lead my army out of Hades. The skeletal soldiers all took one step forward, making their weapons ready. At that point, I probably should have been terrified. The strange thing was, I felt offended. Nothing gets me angrier than being accused of something I didn't do. I've had a lot of experience with that. You're as bad as Zeus, I said. You think I stole from you? That's why you sent the Furies after me? <laughs> Of course, Hades said. And the other monsters? Hades curled his lip. I had nothing to do with them. I wanted no quick death for you. I wanted you brought here before me alive so you might face every torture in the field of punishment. Why do you think I let you enter my kingdom so easily? Italy? Return my property. But I don't have your helm. I, I came for the master bolt. Which you already possess, Hades shouted. You came here with it, little fool, thinking you could threaten me. But I, I didn't. Open your pack, then. A horrible feeling struck me. The weight in my backpack, like a bowling ball. It, it couldn't be. I slung it off my shoulder and unzipped it. Inside was a two-foot-long metal cylinder, spiked on both ends, humming with energy. Percy, Annabeth said. How? I don't know. I, I, I don't understand. You heroes. Always the same, Hades said. Your pride makes you foolish, thinking you could bring such a weapon before me. I did not ask for Zeus's master bolt, but since it is here... You will yield it to me. I am sure it will make an excellent bargaining tool. And now, my helm. Where is it? I was speechless. 
I had no helm. I had no idea how the master bolt had gotten into my backpack. I wanted to think that Hades was pulling some kind of trick. Hades was the bad guy, but suddenly the world had turned sideways. I realized I'd been played with. Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, that each minute each other's throats and set at each other's throats by someone else. The master bolt had been in the backpack, and I'd gotten the backpack from... Lord Hades, wait, I said. This is all a mistake. A mistake, Hades roared. The skeletons aimed their weapons. From high above, there was a fluttering of leathery wings, and the three furies swooped down to perch on the back of their master's throne. The one with Mrs. Dodds's face grinned at me eagerly and flicked her whip. There is no mistake, Hades said. I know why you have come here. I know the real reason you brought the boat. You came to bargain for her. Hades loosed a ball of gold fire from his palm. It exploded on the step in front of me, and there was my mother. Frozen in a shower of gold, just as she was at the moment when the Minotaur had begun to squeeze her to death. I couldn't speak. I reached out to touch her, but the light was as hot as a bonfire. Yes, Hades said with satisfaction. I took her. I know, Percy Jackson, that you would have come to bargain with me eventually. Return my helm and perhaps I will let her go. She's not dead, you know, not yet. But if you displease me, that will change. I thought about the pearls in my pocket. Maybe they could get me out of this. If I could just get my mom free. <laughs> yeah, the pearls, said Hades, and my blood froze. It is my brother and his little tricks. Bring them forward, Percy Jackson. My hand moved against my will and brought out the pearls. Only three, Hades said. What a shame. You do realize each one only protects a single person. Try to take your mother then, little godling, and which of your friends would you leave behind to spend eternity with me? Go on, choose. Or give me the backpack and accept my terms. I looked at Annabeth and Grover. Their faces were grim. We were tricked, I told them. Shut up. Yes, but why? Annabeth asked. And the voice in the pit? I, I don't know yet, I said. But I intend to ask. Decide, boy! Hades yelled. Percy, Grover had his hand on my shoulder. You can't give him the bolt. I, I, I know that. 
Leave me here, he said. Use the third pearl on your mum. No, I'm a satyr, Grover said. We don't have souls like humans do. He can torture me until I die, but he won't get me here forever. I'll just be reincarnated as a flower or something. It's the best way. No. Annabeth drew her bronze knife. You two go on. Grover, you have to protect Percy. You have to get your searcher's license and start on your quest for Pan. Get his mom out of here. I'll cover you. I plan to go down fighting. No way, Grover said. I'm staying behind. Think again, goat boy, Annabeth said. Stop it, both of you. I felt like my heart was being ripped in two. They had both been with me through so much. I remembered Grover dive-bombing Medusa in the statue garden, and Annabeth saving us from Cerberus. We'd survived Hephaestus's Waterland ride, the St. Louis Arch, the Lotus Casino. I had spent thousands of miles worried that I'd be betrayed by a friend, but these friends would never do that. They had done nothing but save me over and over, and now they wanted to sacrifice their lives for my mom. I know what to do, I said. Take these. I handed each of them a pearl. Annabeth said, But, Percy... I turned and faced my mother. I desperately wanted to sacrifice myself and use the last pearl on her, but I knew what she would say. She would never allow it. I had to get the bolt back to Olympus and tell Zeus the truth. I had to stop the war. She would never forgive me if I saved her instead. I thought about the prophecy made at Half-Blood Hill, what seemed like a million years ago. You will fail to save what matters most in the end. I'm sorry, I told her. I'll, I'll be back. I'll find a way. The smug look on Hades' face faded. He said, Godling. I'll find your helm, uncle, I told him. I'll return it. Remember about Charon's pay raise. Do not defy me. And it wouldn't hurt you to play with Cerberus once in a while. He likes red rubber balls. Percy Jackson, you will not. I shouted. Now, guys! We smashed the pearls at our feet. For a scary moment, nothing happened. Hades yelled, Destroy them! The army of skeletons rushed forward, swords out, guns clicking to full automatic. The Furies lunged, their whips bursting into flame. Just as the skeletons opened fire, the pearl fragments at my feet exploded with a burst of green light and a gust of fresh sea wind. I was encased in a milky white sphere which was starting to float off the ground. Annabeth and Grover were right behind me. Spears and bullets sparked harmlessly off the pearl bubbles as we floated up. Hades yelled with such rage the entire fortress shook, and I knew this was not going to be a peaceful night in L.A. Look up, Grover yelled. We're going to crash. 
Sure enough, we were racing right toward the stalactites, which I figured would pop our bubble and skewer us. How do you control these things? Annabeth shouted. I don't think that you do, I shouted back. We screamed as the bubbles slammed into the ceiling and... Darkness. Are we dead? No, I could still feel the racing sensation. We were going up, right up through solid rock as easily as an air bubble in water. That was the power of the pearls. I realized what belongs to the sea will always return to the sea. For a few moments, I couldn't see anything outside the smooth walls of my sphere. Then my pearl broke through on the ocean floor. The two other milky spheres, Annabeth and Grover, kept pace with me as we soared upward through the water, and... We exploded onto the surface in the middle of Santa Monica Bay, knocking a surfer off his board with an indignant... Dude! I grabbed Grover and hauled him over to a life buoy. I caught Annabeth and dragged her over, too. A curious shark was circling us. A great white about 11 feet long. I said, Hey, beat it. The shark turned and raced away. The surfer screamed something about bad mushrooms and paddled away from us as fast as he could. Somehow, I knew what time it was. Early morning, June 21st, the day of the summer solstice. In the distance... Los Angeles was on fire, plumes of smoke rising from neighborhoods all over the city. There had been an earthquake, all right, and it was Hades' fault. He was probably sending an army of undead after me right now. But at the moment, the underworld wasn't my biggest problem. I had to get to shore. I had to get Zeus's thunderbolt back to Olympus. Most of all... I had to have a serious conversation with the god who had tricked me. And I think I agree with your assessment. Some of you folks who have just popped this up in chat. Why on earth would you go surfing on shrooms? Is that a thing? Now, as per usual, everyone, I want to say anything that y'all want to discuss, please put that in chat. I would love to talk about it. You know me. You know what I like to do here. Man, what a chapter, right? That was fun. That was fantastic. That was really interesting. We learned a lot, right? But some of it is stuff that y'all have been guessing at. Some things that even even Percy has been guessing at himself. Rollet says, Poseidon is going to get Percy's mom out. We shall see. Basically, for our chatter break, I want your theories. I want all of your theories about what happened here. Because it seems pretty clear at this point, Hades doesn't know what's going on. Percy thinks Hades is responsible for all this. Hades clearly thinks Percy is responsible for everything. And we know that Percy knows he's been tricked. He knows there's a god involved. What are your theories? I want to know everyone's theories. All right, everyone, I'm going on a five-minute break. If you would like to know more about this, more about sidecar stories, you can follow the links here in chat that have just popped up. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, down in the description box. Everyone, I'll see you in just a sec. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. 
Well, we do what we must, regardless of the choo-choo, says Death Metal Dahlia. Yeah, we're going to need to come up with some sort of Patreon equivalent, because I think I would like to move as much as I as much as much I can of all this to Patreon. Like, I think for the cut that Patreon gets, it's much smaller than the cut Twitch takes. Patreon takes a cut between, I, I get to kind of decide between like 9 and 13%. Um, the cut here on Twitch is... 50. <laughs> that is how much that is how much they yoink. And also, I am familiar with the ownership of Twitch and I'm familiar with the ownership of Patreon. If there's a cut going somewhere, I'd kind of rather they went to Jack Conte than to Amazon. So, there's my feelings about the whole thing. Again, I appreciate it a ton and wherever and whenever y'all are 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 feeling generous, you know, I appreciate that 100%. Um but yeah, we need some we need some fun Patreon stuff, don't we? I put up a post over there. I want to know what y'all want to see from a Patreon because it, it's going to be changing over the next couple of months. Now, let's talk about our theories. I'm super excited. So, I'm going to start way up at the top here. Uh, Vane Howlett says, uh, and Luke asked insistently, uh, asked insistently if he was using the shoes. He did mention it, didn't he? Sparkle Lovegood says, oh, he could do something with them. He could put them on and be taken by another god. Uh, Europa says, Luke is definitely involved fully. Van says, who is Luke's dad slash mom? It's Hermes, right? Could it be could it be related to them? Uh, Iroh says, "Just lurking." Shh, shh, shh. Iroh, Iroh, shh. Pat, I'm, I'm going to pass you all the secret codes now, and then you can you can go back to your lurking. Shh. All right, we've made the handoff. Thank you, Agent Iroh. Luke says, having the name Luke is feeling rough right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's say Stationary Fork says, we don't know who Luke's godparent is either at this point. It seems highly suspicious. I, I do think it was Hermes, right? I do think it was Hermes. I know, obviously, Luke is in the Hermes cabin, but I'm trying to remember, did we get confirmation that Hermes was his parent? Because I think so. I think we did. Um, let's see. Yeah, uh, Luke says we know he's Hermes' son. Yeah, I think we do. Uh, Vainhallet says it could only be one Titan coming from one place in the pit. Vansy's Lies says, yeah, Hermes could have been wronged by the big three and Luke is getting some form of revenge? Luke says it seems like everyone agrees. Luke Stoltzfus says it seems like everyone agrees on Luke. But there's a disagreement as to who he's working with. Ares, a Titan, Hermes, etc. I like this. Mirden has an interesting theory that Eris, goddess of discord, is involved. And boy, it seems like we need something over on our discord related to that, don't we? We need an Eris of some sort. Eris, goddess of discord, means to me that Mirden has been doing your research, which I find really entertaining. I think that's pretty cool. Um, Vane Howlett says he's distracted by his helm. Uh, Rolet says the shoes literally went haywire. How did they blame Ares and not Luke? An interesting question. I mean, they, it, I think the Ares thing is where they got the backpack from. Because that's where this thats where this bolt just popped up. I mean, how it says it's obvious who the pit creature is. <laughs> maybe to some. Maybe not to everybody, though. Luke says, has anyone read all of Rick Riordan's series? Rick Riordan, I think. I, I've been, I've been, I heard the pronunciation both ways. I had originally been saying it differently, and then someone, like, corrected me and said it was Reardon, but that, I, now I've been hearing it elsewhere differently. Rick Riordan, um, I just made it to the next series, and I was blown away by how many books there are. Yeah, there are, like, the number of different series he's done uh, is impressive. Um, Woodson says, what about Zeus? Is he missing something? We, we don't, uh, let's see, don't we only know about Hades and Poseidon missing things? So could Zeus be responsible? I mean, it is possible, right? What what motivation do we think Zeus might have for war? Because it seems like that is the intent here, right? War between the gods. Who benefits from that? Y'all, I think we've had a pretty good discussion here. I know I, we can't quite go into specifics yet, because that is some 
heavy spoiler territory. So, let's talk review and let's read a second chapter. Because, you know, we could talk all day about, uh, you know, what we think this means. And I think y'all have made some really good educated guesses. You're using your context clues. You're doing really well, everybody, talking about, you know, who benefits from some of these things. Um, and frankly, this is how I want y'all to look at the world. So if y'all could just do me a favor and follow me along that path. When you, you're wondering what's going on in the world, consider these things. Who benefits from this? Who's going to profit from this? Is this a reliable source? Are they somehow, are they giving me information that seems true, but they're sort of using it to bend the truth? I want y'all to think critically about the information you're getting in the world. And I think this is a great opportunity that y'all have been sort of applying these skills. Use this critical thinking all over the place. All over the place. Now, review. In our last chapter, we have gone down to the palace of Hades himself. But a quick detour beforehand, they got dragged. These... These flying shoes that were given to them as a gift, as a gift, these flying shoes um, dragged Grover, who was wearing them at the time, down away from the palace toward this sort of, in this different direction, toward this chasm. It's the size of a city block. It is the, the chasm down into Tartarus. This is like the, this is that deep layer of hell. Beyond the fields of Asphodel and all that, this is that deepest layer of, of, of Hades, of this place. Because, um, of course, Hades is kind of the place, and it's also kind of the person. Um, you'll find that a lot of myth kind of is like that. You know, Pan is a god, you know, and, and in that way, a person, but also is nature. Not represents nature, but is nature. So, it's a little wonky. You'll just have to trust me and follow along. They get to the edge of this chasm, and we realize this is the chasm Percy has been seeing in his dreams. This is not just some big hole in the ground. Not only that, but he hears it. He hears... What is that? He hears the voice whispering. whispering and muttering down below, chanting something. They managed to get these shoes off of Grover, and they managed to deviate back in the direction they wanted to go. But Percy knows whatever is down in that pit, it has been communicating with him via dreams. And those shoes were trying to take him there. They go into Hades' palace, and immediately they are hit by accusations from Hades. Hades is... We know this already, not what you would consider like a good guy, but Hades is also baffled. Accusations fly in both directions. Percy does not like to be accused of things that he was not responsible for. He's had too much experience with that already, too much trouble in school to take on any more trouble than the stuff he was actually responsible for. Percy and Hades are accusing one another back and forth, and we finally understand Neither of them really, truly knows what happened to the Master Bolt until this moment when Hades demands that Percy opens up his backpack, the one given to him. And there it is. It's the Master Bolt indeed. It's in Percy's bag. He brought it here to Hades unknowingly. And not only that, but Hades reveals his helm of darkness, the, this thing that allows him to be invisible, and this true, this true source of a lot of his power, his social power, his power to, to, to have other people 
fear him and respect him, that's gone as well. He knows Percy has come here to bargain for his mother. That's why he brought the bolt, as far as Hades, Hades is concerned. And Hades demands that Percy turn over the bolt. But Percy decides not to. He has got these three pearls given to him by the emissary of his father, the representative of his father. Three pearls. But there are four people. Percy, Annabeth, Grover, Percy's mom. Each pearl is only going to be able to cover one of them. And so it's the question, who am I going to leave behind? And he realizes he can't leave Grover or Annabeth behind and he can't stay here himself. He has to listen to what his mother would say if she were able to tell him anything right now. He has to leave her here and go and stop this war before it happens. He's got the Master Bolt now. It's in his backpack. He has it. So he chucks down the pearls and the three of them float up to Los Angeles where in his rage, Hades has caused an earthquake. There are fires on the shore and for whatever reason, there's this dude out here swimming and, sh and surfing while on shrooms during a fire and earthquake. Don't get me started on that. All right. Although I guess in an earthquake, maybe the water is a safe place to be. No, it definitely isn't. That's what causes tsunamis, isn't it? Anyway, that's not why we're here today. We, this, the education we do here is sort of intro to literary analysis, definitely not geology and tectonics. So if you'll forgive me for that little detour, everyone, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. And tonight is, of course, Flying Sidecar, a voice actor's venture through some stories we all love. We are reading Percy Jackson and the Olympians. And this is our second and final chapter for the evening. Indeed. <laughs> Chapter 20. I battle my jerk relative. A Coast Guard boat picked us up, but they were too busy to keep us for long or to wonder how three kids in street clothes had gotten out into the middle of the bay. There was a disaster to mop up. The radios were jammed with distress calls. They dropped us off at the Santa Monica Pier with towels around our shoulders and water bottles that said, I'm a junior Coast Guard, and sped off to save more people. Our clothes were sopping wet, even mine. When the Coast Guard boat had appeared, I'd prayed silently that they wouldn't pick me out of the water and find me perfectly dry, which might have raised some eyebrows. So I'd willed myself to get soaked. Sure enough, my usual waterproof magic had abandoned me. I was also barefoot, because I'd given my shoes to Grover. Better the Coast Guard wonder why one of us was barefoot than wonder why one of us had hooves. After reaching dry land, we stumbled down the beach, watching the city burn against a beautiful sunrise. I felt as if I'd just come back from the dead, which I had. My backpack was heavy with Zeus's master bolt. My heart was even heavier from seeing my mother. I don't believe it, Annabeth said. We went all that way. It was a trick, I said. A strategy worthy of Athena. Hey, she warned. 
You get it, don't you? She dropped her eyes, her anger fading. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Well, I don't, Grover complained. Would somebody... Percy, Annabeth said. I'm sorry about your mother. I'm so sorry. I pretended not to hear her. If I talked about my mother, I was going to start crying like a little kid. The prophecy was right, I said. You shall go west and face the god who was turned. But it wasn't Hades. Hades didn't want war among the big three. Somebody else pulled off the theft. Somebody stole Zeus's master bolt and Hades' helm and framed me because I'm Poseidon's kid. Poseidon will get blamed by both sides. By sundown today, there's going to be a three-way war. And I will have caused it. Grover shook his head, mystified. But who would be that sneaky? Who would want a war that badly? I stopped in my tracks, looking down the beach. Oh, gee, let me think. There he was, waiting for us, in his black leather duster and his sunglasses, an aluminum baseball bat propped on his shoulder. His motorcycle rumbled beside him, its headlight turning the sand red. Hey, kid! Ares said, seeming genuinely pleased to see me. <laughs> you were supposed to die. You tricked me, I said. You stole the helm and the master bolt. Ares grinned. <laughs> well, now, I didn't steal them personally. God's taking each other's symbols of power. That's a big no-no. You're not the only kid in the world who can run errands. Who did you use? Clarice? She was there at the winter solstice. The idea seemed to amuse him. It doesn't matter. The point is, kid, you're impeding the war effort. You see, you got to die in the underworld. Then old seaweed will be mad at Hades for killing you. Corpse breath will see that, well, he's got Zeus's master bolt, and Zeus is going to be mad at him. And Hades is still looking for this. From his pocket, he took out a ski cap, the kind that bank robbers wear, and placed it between the handlebars of his bike. Immediately, the cap transformed into an elaborate bronze war helmet. <gasps> the helm of darkness, Grover gasped. Exactly, Ares said. Now... Where was I? Oh, yeah, Hades will be mad at both Zeus and Poseidon, because he doesn't know who took this. Pretty soon we got a nice little three-way slugfest going on. But they're your family, Annabeth protested. Ares shrugged. Best kind of war. Always the bloodiest. Nothing like watching your relatives fight, I always say. You gave me the backpack in Denver, I said. The master bowl was there the whole time. Uh, yes and no, Ares said. It's probably too complicated for your little mortal brain to follow, but the backpack is the master bolt's sheath. Just morphed a bit. 
The bolt is connected to it, sort of like that saw that you got, kid. Always returns to your pocket, right? I wasn't sure how Ares knew that, but I guess a god of war had to make it his business to know about weapons. Anyway, Ares continued, I tinkered with the magic a bit so the boat would only return to the sheaf once you reached the underworld. You get close to Hades, bingo, you got mail. If you died along the way, no loss, I still had the weapon. Why not keep the master bolt for yourself, I said. Why send it to Hades? Ares got a twitch in his jaw. For a moment, it were almost as if he were listening to another voice deep inside his head. Why didn't I? Yeah. Well, with that, with that kind of firepower. He held the trance for one second. Two seconds. I exchanged nervous looks with Annabeth. Ares's face cleared. I didn't want the trouble. Better to have you caught red-handed holding the thing. You're lying, I said. Sending the bolt to the underworld wasn't your idea, was it? Of course it was. Smoke drifted up from his sunglasses as if they were about to catch fire. You... Didn't order the theft, I guessed. Someone else sent the hero to steal the two items. Then when Zeus sent you to hunt them down, you caught the thief, but you didn't turn him over to Zeus. Something convinced you to let him go. You kept the items until another hero could come along and complete the delivery. That thing in the pit is ordering you around. I am the god of war. I take orders from nobody. I don't have dreams. I hesitated. Who said anything about dreams? Ares looked agitated, but he tried to cover it with a smirk. Let's just go back to the problem at hand, kid. You're alive. I can't have you taking that boat to Olympus. You might just get those hard-headed idiots to listen to you. So... I gotta kill you. Nothing personal. He snapped his fingers. The sand exploded at his feet and outcharged a wild boar, even larger and uglier than the one whose head hung over the door of Cabin 7 at Camp Half-Blood. The beast pawed the sand, glaring at me with beady eyes as it lowered its razor-sharp tusks and waited for the command to kill. I stepped into the surf. Fight me yourself, Ares. He laughed, but I heard a hard edge to his laughter, an uneasiness. <laughs> you only got one tenant, kid, running away. You ran from the Chimera, you ran from the underworld, you, you don't have what it takes. You scared? In your adolescent dreams. But his sunglasses were starting to melt from the heat of his eyes. No direct involvement. Sorry, kid. You're not at my level. Annabeth said, Percy, run! The giant boar charged. 
But I was done running from monsters. Or Hades, or Ares, or anybody. As the boar rushed me, I uncapped my pen and sidestepped. Riptide appeared in my hands. I slashed upward. The boar's severed right tusk fell at my feet while the disoriented animal charged into the sea. I shouted, Wave! Immediately, a wave surged up from nowhere and engulfed the boar, wrapping around it like a blanket. The beast squealed once in terror. And then it was gone, swallowed by the sea. I turned back to Ares. Are you going to fight me now? I asked. Are you going to hide behind another pet? Ares' face was purple with rage. You watch it, kid. I could turn you into a... A cockroach, I said. Or a tapeworm. Yeah, I'm sure. That'd save you from getting your godly hide whipped, wouldn't it? Flames danced along the top of his sunglasses. Oh, man. You are really asking to be smashed into a grease spot. If I lose, turn me into anything you want. Take the bolt. If I win, the helm and the bolts are mine, and you gotta go away. Ares sneered. He swung the baseball bat over his shoulder. How would you like to get smashed? Classic or modern? I showed him my sword. That's cool, dead boy, he said. Classic it is. The baseball bat changed into a huge two-handed sword. The hilt was a large silver skull with a ruby in its mouth. Percy, Annabeth said, don't do this. He's a god. He's a coward, I told her. She swallowed. Wear this, at least, for luck. She took off her necklace with her five years' worth of camp beads and the ring from her father, and tied it around my neck. Reconciliation, she said. Athena and Poseidon together. My face felt a little warm, but I managed to smile. Thanks. And take this, Grover said, he handed me a flattened tin can that he'd probably been saving in his pocket for a thousand miles. The satyrs stand behind you. Grover, I... I don't know what to say. He patted me on the shoulder. I stuffed the tin can in my back pocket. Done saying goodbye. Ares came toward me, his black leather duster trailing behind him, his sword glinting like fire in the sunrise. I've been waiting for an eternity, kid. My strength is unlimited and I cannot die. What have you got? A smaller ego, I thought, but I said nothing. I kept my feet in the surf backing into the water up to my ankles. I thought back to what Annabeth had said at the Denver diner so long ago. Ares has strength. That's all he has. Even strength has to bow to wisdom sometimes. He cleaved downward at my head, but I wasn't there. My body thought for me. 
The water seemed to push me into the air, and I catapulted over him, slashing as I came down, but Ares was just as quick. He twisted, and the strike that should have caught him directly in the spine was deflected off the end of his sword hilt. He grinned. Not bad. Not bad. He slashed again, and I was forced to jump onto dry land. I tried to sidestep to get back to the water, but Ares seemed to know what I wanted. He outmaneuvered me, pressing so hard I had to put all of my concentration on not getting sliced into pieces. I kept backing away from the surf. I couldn't find any openings to attack. His sword had a reach several feet longer than Anaclusmos. Get in close, Luke had told me once, back in our sword class. When you got the shorter blade, get in close. I stepped inside with a thrust, but Ares was waiting for that. He knocked my blade out of my hands and kicked me in the chest. I went airborne. Twenty, maybe thirty feet. I would have broken my back if I hadn't crashed into the soft sand of a dune. Percy? Annabeth called. Cops! I was seeing double. My chest felt like it had been hit with a battering ram, but I managed to get to my feet. I couldn't look away from Ares for fear he'd slice me in half, but out of the corner of my eye I saw red lights flashing from the shoreline boulevard. Car doors were slamming. There, officer, somebody yelled. See? A gruff cop voice. It looks like that kid on TV. What the heck? That guy's armed, another cop said. Call for backup. I rolled to one side as Ares' blade slashed the sand. I ran for my sword, scooped it up, and launched a swipe at Ares' face, only to find my blade deflected again. Ares seemed to know exactly what I was doing the moment before I did it. I stepped backward toward the surf, forcing him to follow. I mean, admit it, kid, Ares said. You got no hope. I'm just toying with you. My senses were working overtime. I now understood that Annabeth had said... Oh. My senses were working overtime. I now understood what Annabeth had said about ADHD keeping you alive in battle. I was wide awake, noticing every little detail. I could see where Ares was tensing. I could tell which way he would strike. At the same time, I was aware of Annabeth and Grover, 30 feet to my left. I saw a second cop car pulling up, sirens wailing. Spectators, people who had been wandering the streets because of the earthquake, were starting to gather. Among the crowd, I thought I saw a few who were walking to the strange, trotting gait of disguised satyrs. There were shimmering forms of spirits, too, as if the dead had risen from Hades to watch the battle. I heard the flap of leathery wings circling somewhere above. More sirens. I stepped further into the water, but Ares was fast. The tip of his blade ripped my sleeve and grazed my forearm. A police voice on a megaphone. Drop the guns! Set them on the ground, now! Guns? I looked at Ares' weapon, and it seemed to be flickering. Sometimes it looked like a shotgun, sometimes a two-handed sword. I didn't know what the humans were seeing in my hands, but I was pretty sure it wouldn't make them like me. Ares turned to glare at our spectators, which gave me a moment to breathe. There were five police cars now, and a line of officers crouching behind them, pistols trained on us. 
This is a private matter, Ares bellowed. Be gone! He swept his hand and a wall of red flame rolled across the patrol cars. The police barely had time to dive for cover before their vehicles exploded. The crowd behind them scattered, screaming. Ares roared with laughter. Now, little hero, <laughs> let's add you to the barbecue. He slashed. I deflected his blade. I got close enough to strike, tried to fake him out with a feint, but my blow was knocked aside. The waves were hitting me in the back now. Ares was up to his thighs, wading in after me. I felt the rhythm of the sea, the waves growing larger as the tide rolled in, and suddenly I had an idea. Little waves, I thought, and the water behind me seemed to recede. I was holding back the tide by force of will, but tension was building, like carbonation behind a cork. Ares came forward, grinning confidently. I lowered my blade, as if I were too exhausted to go on. Wait for it, I told the sea. The pressure now was almost lifting me off my feet. Ares raised his sword. I released the tide and jumped, rocketing straight over Ares on a wave. A six-foot wall of water smashed him full in the face, leaving him cursing and spluttering with a mouthful of seaweed. I landed behind him with a splash and fainted toward his head, as I'd done before. He turned in time to raise his sword, but this time he was disoriented. He didn't anticipate the trick. I changed direction, lunged to one side, and stabbed Riptide straight down into the water, setting the point through the god's heel. The roar that followed made Hades' earthquake look like a minor event. The very sea was blasted back from Ares, leaving a wet circle of sand fifty feet wide. Ikor, the golden blood of the gods, flowed from a gash in the war god's boot. The expression on his face was beyond hatred. It was pain. Shock, complete disbelief that he'd been wounded. He limped toward me, muttering something in ancient Greek curses. Something stopped him. It was as if a cloud covered the sun, but worse. Light faded, sound and color drained away. A cold... Heavy presence passed over the beach, slowing time, dropping the temperature to freezing and making me feel like life was hopeless, fighting was useless. The darkness lifted. Ares looked stunned. The police cars were burning behind us. The crowd of spectators had fled. Annabeth and Grover stood on the beach, in shock, watching the water flood back around Ares' feet, his glowing golden ichor dissipating in the tide. Ares lowered his sword.
you have made an enemy, Godling. He told me. You have sealed your fate. Every time you raise your blade in battle, every time you hope for success, you will feel my curse. Beware, Perseus Jackson. Beware. His body began to glow. Percy! Annabeth shouted. Don't watch! I turned away as the god Ares revealed his true immortal form. I somehow knew that if I looked, I would disintegrate into ashes. The light died. I looked back. Ares was gone. The tide rolled out to reveal Hades' bronze helm of darkness. I picked it up and walked toward my friends. But before I got there, I heard the flapping of leathery wings. Three evil-looking grandmothers with lathes, hats, and fiery whips drifted down from the sky and landed in front of me. The middle fury, the one who had been Mrs. Dodds, stepped forward. Her fangs were bared, but for once, she didn't look threatening. She looked more disappointed as if she'd been planning to have me for supper, but I decided I might give her indigestion. We saw the whole thing, she hissed. So, it truly was not you. I tossed her the helmet, which she caught in surprise. Return that to Lord Hades, I said. Tell him the truth. Tell him to call off the war. She hesitated, then ran a forked tongue over her green, leathery lips. Live well, Percy Jackson. Become a true hero. Because if you do not, if you ever come into my clutches again... <laughs> She cackled, savoring the idea. Then she and her sisters rose on their bat's wings, fluttered into the smoke-filled sky, and disappeared. I joined Grover and Annabeth, who were staring at me in amazement. Percy, Grover said, that was so incredibly terrifying, said Annabeth. Cool, Grover corrected. I didn't feel terrified. I certainly didn't feel cool. I was tired and sore and completely drained of energy. Did you guys feel that whatever it was? I asked. They both nodded uneasily. It must have been the furies overhead, Grover said. But I wasn't so sure. Something had stopped Ares from killing me, and whatever could do that was a lot stronger than the Furies. I looked at Annabeth, and an understanding passed between us. I knew now what was in that pit, what had spoken from the entrance of Tartarus.
I reclaimed my backpack from Grover and looked inside. The master bolt was still there. Such a small thing to almost cause World War III. We have to get back to New York, I said. By tonight. That's impossible, Annabeth said. Unless we fly, I agreed. She stared at me. Fly like in an airplane, which you were warned never to do, lest Zeus strike you out of the sky, and carrying a weapon that has more destructive power than a nuclear bomb. Yeah, I said. Pretty much exactly like that. Come on. And that's the end of our second chapter for the evening. Everyone, I want to thank you all very, very much for being here. My name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. I stream Tuesdays through Thursdays with the occasional Friday thrown in. Tuesday, of course, Vintage Sidecar, where we shed some light on classic lit. It's like this. We do the reading aloud. We do the discussion. But we dive in a little deeper into our characters and our themes. It's kind of, if this is the 101 class, that's kind of the 102. Um, but, of course, these are mostly just, I want you all to get a taste. I want you all to feel what, what literary analysis can mean for you and how it can be a lot more fun than the title literary analysis i don't that was supposed to be like kind of a, a stuffy individual not what that ended up looking like so i apologize on wednesdays we have got the after we have just completed episode one if you want to find out more about that please head over to youtube where the um the episode zero has already been put up. Episode one is going to be on YouTube on, let's see, that is going to be up on Tuesday. And of course, you can find those VODs here on Twitch in the unedited form even before that. That's Wednesdays. Wednesdays are going to be dedicated for the time being to tabletop RPGs. And the after is an eight-part miniseries about defying and discovering the apocalypse, told using the Fiasco tabletop game system. It's kind of the most boiled down, the most refined, most almost platonic ideal of what it means to be able to tell stories with tabletop RPGs. And of course, on Thursdays, well, y'all know what we do here. We got stuff to talk about. We got beans to eat, gang. What? What? Let's talk and then let's beans. So, first of all, our discussion. Now, what a couple of chapters. I thought these were some of the most exciting chapters we've had yet. Um, in spite of the fact that, you know, a big part of our first chapter of the night was not combat. It wasn't fighting. It was this face-off between Hades and Percy. I thought that was some of the most exciting action we've had all all night, all series even. Uh, Van Saves Live says, probably the best pair we've gotten so far. It does seem that way, right? Every time we've had an interaction with a god so far, it has been this like very adversarial, obviously. Even with gods that it shouldn't really be that adversarial, there's no reason why why like um Mr. D, for instance, should be so so frustrated with Percy, but he is. So they they have this adversarial relationship. When Ares shows up, it's the it is big time adversarial. They are not friends, right? And it's always been Percy kind of like, just sort of like having to step out of the way. Not not literally, but kind of the, the overall sort of tone of the whole thing is Percy, step out of the way. There's this god sort of barreling through, doing whatever they're going to do. Just step out of the way. You have to. And what do we get down in Hades with the god Hades? 
Percy Foot. You know what? I'm just going to say it like that. Percy Foots is put down. <laughs> he foots his put right down and stands there in front of Hades and simply says, I didn't do this. You really are, like, you and the rest of the gods, you really are kind of all this one way, right? You have so little concern for the people down below you. And one thing that I think is really interesting about that relationship, about that this sort of, this emotional undercurrent that has developed for the gods is, we've seen it before, these people are not, like, we're not looking at smart, um, or, or, Smart, sorry. We are looking at smart smart gods occasionally, but we're not looking at infallible, perfect people. Right? We're going to talk about gods as if they are people because I think that is very appropriate considering what we know about them. They have, they have flaws. They have um, sometimes terrible and powerful flaws that make them, you know, they, they make them look like fools in front of other gods even. These people who are gods are not so much more right or, or clever sometimes than some of the people down below. Not only that, but they can be influenced. And we see this in the sort of big reveal of our second chapter for the evening, which is, Ares was behind the whole thing. You, you peel back that curtain, there he is, Ares. He wants a war. He wants to He wants to sort of move this bolt around, this super powerful weapon. Well, I guess he could have used that weapon, couldn't he? Wait a second. Is that a... Is that a second curtain behind Ares? We don't know what's back there. Percy seems to. We get this note that it sounds like Percy does know, and I think we can count that as like some pretty serious foreshadowing that we are about to find out as well. It's some pretty it's some pretty like broad foreshadowing, but I think we can count it as, as foreshadowing nonetheless. Sloth Creature says somebody influenced Ares. Yes. Yes, indeed. Stationary Fork says, I think maybe because the gods are immortal and they've been around for so long, human life seems so small and insignificant to them. Maybe that's why. I think you're right. I think there is something in that sort of scale of time that makes people, and when I say people here, I'm referring to the gods in this case, it makes them invisible, it makes them, excuse me, uh, kind of kind of unable to sense, the kind of blind to the fact that they are they are not perfect themselves. Percy knows within what's in the pit. And I don't want to get into spoiler territory, so I'm not going to talk about it at too much length here. But what I do want y'all to, to think about here, um, and a quick a couple of quick things. First of all, we are going to raid over to Halfbit's uh, guest spot later. But also, Death Metal Dahlia has just put in another edition of this link here. That is to a special uh, Discord that is distinct from, from mine that y'all have been using to great effect to organize a bunch of games. And I think that's super cool. So, um, sidecar adjacent. I like that. Dahlia. Um, but that's Dahlia's Dark Room. And if you want to head over there, um, y'all can find you, you will find yourself playing a lot more games with, with fun folks than you have before. So something to keep in mind. Um, uh, and Dahlia, if you want to put that link again, that's totally fine with me. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about Percy himself, right? Like I said, I don't want to. I, I think I, I've seen a couple of you post your your theories here as to who is in the pit, who's responsible. When we open up that curtain, we see Ares there, and we see that second curtain, that second curtain that we can't we can't drag that aside to find out who's behind it. We just hear the whispers and the murmurs and the chanting coming from behind it. 
This is, of course, a metaphor that I'm using, sort of a um, uh, <laughs> uh, to to represent whatever's in the pit, right? Whatever's in that chasm down in Tartarus, whatever's down there. We can't see what it is, but we can see what Percy is doing, what Percy's choices are. And I want to talk about those for a second, because in these two chapters, we have really seen the turn. We have seen, we've seen in the past, of course, Percy has indeed been a character who has strong convictions. Whether or not he is always able to sort of perfectly execute on those I think he's very human, like many of the rest. I think one of the themes that we're going to see here, and really one of the themes, if y'all want to talk about themes, one of the themes that is that exists throughout all of Greek mythology, and many other myths as well, but really, really seems prominent in mythology, is the idea of flaws, and not only that, but fatal flaws. This is something that comes up frequently in, in Greek myth, fatal flaws. These are, this is sort of your one flaw, your one specific flaw, this one thing that's wrong with you that is your constant downfall. Everyone that we see represented here, I think, has their flaws. Except Grover. Grover's perfect. I'm joking. Um, Everyone has their flaws here. And I think we're, I don't know that we've got a perfect representation of what is Percy's fatal flaw. If there's anything here, I mean, I suppose we could say the, the most common theme, I think if we were to like tally it all up, this is every time he's prideful. This is every time he's foolish. This is every time he is, um, uh, he is, uh, ignorant. This is every time he chooses not to look before he leaps. I think the one that I would see most is his impertinence. Now, some of y'all might not be familiar with this word. Um, impertinence essentially means like how sassy he is and he is he's a very sassy boy right i think we can all agree on this he's a sassy lad Denisha says i mean percy has kind of earned the right to be sassy though considering how because of the gods he has been ripped away from his family and blamed for a crime he didn't commit he he's been brined for a crime he didn't commit um that is that is a a really good observation, right? I think from from Percy's own perspective. Now, if we're to consider this from a god's perspective, of course, it is simple, unfounded impertinence, right? It is bold-faced, like um, <laughs> just like absolutely being kind of kind of just being a turd, frankly. From a, from the god's perspective, at least the gods we've seen so far, who often tend to be, as we've talked about, really prideful. From Percy's point of view, I want to talk about this though. This this sense of the sense of him being a sassy lad. He's like that sometimes to the gods, sometimes to people who have directly caused him some sort of, well, frankly, like prolonged discomfort, prolonged um, persecution in some cases. Right? He's been different all of his life. It has caused him to suffer. It has caused him to be bullied and such. Um, ADHD, constantly moving around, and I don't want to like. I don't want to underplay here. I don't want to underemphasize what I would consider probably to be the greatest weight that Percy carries. Now, I I some of this might be sort of projection from my point of view, but I think projection is okay. I've said it before, the value of art is in its subjectivity. It's the way that each one of us can approach it differently and it might mean something different to each one of us. That is the value of something like literature here. 
From my own perspective, as I consider the similarities between myself and Percy, ADHD, no, but uh, at least not not when I was a kid. Um, um, but this this sense of kind of having a constant um, uh, have, having a constant like inability to really dedicate oneself to one thing for him it's because of, of ADHD um, uh, the idea that you're sort of you know getting in trouble and this constant guilt that you are underperforming in some way I think of anything of the bullying of the dealing with ADHD of the like having to move around and such as I look at Percy Jackson I think the the heaviest weight that Percy carries is the guilt at not being good enough. I think some people react very differently to the idea of not being good enough, to, to, to internalizing that, but Percy has internalized that substantially, that idea that Percy is not good enough. Basically, to cap this all off, um, I think the heaviest weight from my perspective that Percy carries is not not the weight of the bullying. It's not the weight of of the inability to concentrate. It's not the weight of, you know, moving around and having to, you know, jump in with different social groups all the time. From my perspective, the heaviest weight that would be on Percy's shoulders is his inability to function as he sees is normal around him and his guilt about that and the, the toll that he feels it takes on his, his mother. That's heavy, heavy stuff right there. Stationary Forks says, Percy is young, so he does act on emotion, but I think he's also showing a lot of personal growth. He's still young, just realize he's more than he thought that he was. And I am hoping that as we proceed forward, and I want you all to track this, right? This is another thing, as I've said so many times before, this is one of those things I want you all to keep an eye on. How does Percy's own feelings of guilt about not being able to make it in the real world, how does that, how does that change? Is that going to go away over time as we find that maybe Percy can't make it in the, quote, real world, in the normal world, in the standard world, but he's doing okay for himself here in the world of myth. 